You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. A reading from the letter of Hebrews. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became a source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, with your word open, we ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to us. We also desire to lift up these uh, young boys in Thailand. We thank you, Lord, for the safe rescue of four of them. We pray for the other nine, along with their coach. We do ask, Lord, that you would watch over the divers and all those that are involved in the rescue. We pray that there will be no more fatalities. Lord God, we ask for the witness of your gospel in this place. We thank you for the presence of your grace. We pray for the continued help. Lord God, we also pray for uh, Pastor Matt Schneider as he leaves for a study leave in France. We pray that you'd watch over him, bless that time. We pray that it would just be very good and that you'd watch over his family in his absence. Help us now before your word uh, to hear from you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray together. Amen. Hebrews was designed to be a 60-minute sermon. 
you have to maybe judge whether or not you've got the patience and the wherewithal mentally and emotionally to hang with the pastor who wrote Hebrews. But that's what scholars are telling us, that it was, it became a letter, but it started out as a 60-minute sermon, delivered probably to the believing community in Rome that was made up of both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. You know, the emphasis in the American church oftentimes is about the start of the Christian life, kind of how to get saved, how to come to Jesus, how to know God through Christ. But that's really not the focus of the letter, the sermon that the pastor writes to these believers in Rome. The focus in this message, in this Hebrews, is on being faithful all the way to the end. And the need for God's sustaining grace so that you can, from beginning to end, acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord in all aspects of your life. So the focus changes. Peter Gilchrist, uh, an Episcopal minister, wrote, Today we emphasize the new birth. The ancients emphasized being faithful to the end. We moderns talk about wholeness and purposeful living. They spoke of the glories of the eternal kingdom. The emphasis in our attention has shifted from the completing of the Christian life to the beginning of it. So thankfully, Hebrews kind of reorients us. Uh, On a night like this, I imagine most people in this worship service truly claim Jesus Christ as Lord. And I think really sometimes the best message to those who have not yet made that commitment is actually witnessing believers in the household of faith worshiping the Lord God because of how they have received this gospel. Hebrews begins in such a a kind of definite and powerful way. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has now spoken to us by his son, who is the radiance of God's glory the exact representation of his being. And goes on to say that he's now seated at the right hand of the Father because he has provided purification for our sins. This really is not a message about people who kind of want a greater sense of meaning in their life. It's not a, a... a message that is delivered to people who want sort of a little affirmation to feel a sense of strength and self-esteem. It's really not about that. It, in a sense, lowers the sense of affirmation so that you feel better and puts all the weight on the fact that you need, I need, a Savior who provides eternal salvation, forgiveness of my sins, Access by his grace into God's presence. Now, there's so much in the New Testament that covers affirmation and, and covers encouragement and, and covers you know, that, that self-esteem issue. So I'm not downplaying that. But here's a letter that sort of really gets into 
the invisibles. And you might even say the intangibles. We kind of are fixated on the physical, on the visceral, on that which we can touch, on the statistics, on the sex, on the apps, on the cells, on the microbes, on the salaries, on the stocks, on the weapons. Visibility sort of conquers vision in life today. David Brooks is one of my favorite New York Times uh, op-ed writers. He's so ironic. It's a good kind of conservative. Uh, he's not partisan. He just always seems really sensible. And he gave the uh, 2015 commencement address at Dartmouth. And in that, he, he dispensed with the, what he called the usual garbage advice right up front. Listen to your inner voice, be true to yourself, follow your passions, your future is limitless, don't be afraid to fail. He kicked that out, and he gave the ultimate spoiler alert. He spoke of the need for graduates to understand that their 20s may be the best decade of their life. You realize that, some of you? This is the best decade of your life. It would be the happiest and the hardest, the search for a job, the establishment of commitments, the understanding of kind of where you fit and where you want to fit through trial and error. Brooks encourages you'll discover your true loves and you'll come up with your own criteria of success. And by the time you hit your 30s, you'll realize that your primary mission in life is making commitments. And he lists four of these um, basic commitments to your spouse and family, to your career and vocation, to your faith or philosophy, to co your community and vill or village. There's a lot of uncommon, common grace in David Brooks's philosophy of life, playing down self-centeredness, concern for a moral order, dealing with the selfish self. But I can't get away from the nagging concern that David Brooks may be very, very dangerous to the Christian faith. Because what he's done is really taken a lot of the kind of the low-hanging, really interesting emotional and existential truths of the Christian faith and he's taken them off and disconnected them from those invisible realities that are so hard to believe in in the 21st century. The incarnation. God became human. The crucifixion as a divine atoning sacrifice for our sins. That we needed that so as not to be judged by God, because we are steeped in our depravity, steeped in our sin. A bodily resurrection, yeah, a real resurrection. An eternal life, death does not end all, but an everlasting life. 
You see how hard it is to believe in these things in the 21st century? So somebody comes along and says, you know, you've got to deal with your commitments. Don't be so self-oriented. And they could dissuade us from understanding that we need a savior, not an affirmer. Well, that brings us to, well, one other thought. You do realize that in the book of Hebrews, there's, a, there's, there's kind of this tension between exposition, teaching, and exhortation. Do you get the message? Is it practiced in your life? And it, it goes, I mean, it's... There's a spiraling kind of intensity with this exhortation and exposition and exhortation that runs right through this whole letter. Those aren't parenthetical thoughts when the author of Hebrews says, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we don't drift away. Pay careful attention to this great salvation so we don't drift away. I mean, we could spend so much time on those aspects that... I mean, he's not really talking there about external opposition. He's not talking about flagrant disobedience. He's just talking about kind of drifting away from the truth. My son in in Costa Rica went to Costa Rica to set up a, a lifeguard team in Dominical, Costa Rica, and he spent five years getting a group of Costa Ricans together who could save lives. And this particular beach was, uh, is greatly affected by rip currents. Uh, they're saving people all the time. And you can have a beautiful sunny day where the water seems just picture perfect. And underneath, the surf, underneath that surface is just dangerous rip currents that the naive swimmer uh, gets caught up in. Um, the nickname for Dominical was Death Beach. So many tourists died on this beach. Well, the danger of just sort of drifting away from bedrock conviction of the necessity of Jesus Christ and his salvation. So we get to the passage for today in verse 14. And don't be scared, that doesn't mean I'm going to talk that long. But, therefore, since we have a great high priest who's ascended into the heaven, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, let's hold firmly to the faith that we profess. Because we have a high priest who can really empathize and sympathize. Because of the incarnation, God becoming human, Transcending his transcendence. Coming into our world. Now, as you understand in the, in the history of salvation, the Lord set up. He set up a model. He set up a type. The whole business of the tabernacle and the temple, the altar, the holy of holies, All of that is an image, as a model, to instruct people on the need for the atonement, on the need for salvation. And a priesthood was established through the line of Aaron. 
And the description of these priests is, is very positive here in the book of Hebrews. Because these priests did empathize. They understood the weakness because they were weak. They could uh, be concerned for the sinner because they themselves were sinners. They had to offer up sacrifices for their own sin as well as for the sins of the people. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God and to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he had to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor upon himself. It was through the line of Aaron, it was through God's providence, through the sovereignty of God's selection, that a person was a priest. He didn't just choose the vocation. The vocation was chosen for him. This is the analogy that the author of Hebrews is building because now you and I have a great high priest. All of that modeling, all of that type, has been now fulfilled in the incarnate one, the Son who is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, who now sits at the right hand of the Father after providing purification for our sins. In the same way, verse 5, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, now, have to follow this here. It's not easy to follow, I don't think, but two little quotes from the Psalms. Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have become, today I have become your father. Don't let that confuse you. There is in the book of Hebrews a reality of the being of Jesus. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the becoming of Jesus. That Jesus, in his essence, is God. No debate there. And yet, in what he did, he became everything he was in his essence. So the being and the becoming of Jesus. And this is where you get the convergence of these beautiful excellencies. Jonathan Edwards described it this way. Jonathan Edwards, one of our early American theologians, there is an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies in Jesus. Infinite highness, infinite condescension, infinite justice, infinite grace, infinite glory, lowest humility, infinite majesty, and transcendent meekness, equality with God, and deepest reverence towards God infinite worthiness of good, greatest patience under sufferings, absolute sovereignty, perfect resignation. All of that coming together in Jesus, our great high priest, who truly empathizes with us in our weakness and went to the cross on our behalf to provide the perfect sacrifice once and for all that all those who depend upon him are saved. 
That's not a 21st century mental paradigm. And yet this truth is timeless. This truth lasts for eternity. This truth will never be dated. This truth is for us. Jesus shows us the empathy, even as he's appointed by the Father to fulfill this role. The second quote is, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a kind of shadowy character in the book of Genesis, Genesis 14. Abraham comes upon him, and Melchizedek uh, blesses Abraham. Abraham gives Melchizedek an offering, acknowledges him as a priest of God. Very little is said about Melchizedek. His name meant king of righteousness and king of peace. And it's as if God just put that in there. A priestly line different from the Aaron Levitical line. He puts this in there in the history so that it's going to be taken up and fulfilled in Jesus, who is a priest after the order, not of Aaron, not of the Levites, but after Melchizedek. He makes something of Melchizedek, as it were. And what he makes of it is the Son of God who fits a completely different priestly role that nobody can be like him. And you know what? And it's really interesting in the light of this is that we no longer need those other priests. They're out of work. And that's why the book of Hebrews is about the end of religion. All religion. It's about the end of Mormonism. It's the end of Episcopalianism. The end of Buddhism. The end of Islam. The end of all of them. The best religion going was the one that we have in the Old Testament. That God revealed himself. That was the way to go. But now that has been fulfilled. And you don't need priests to mediate for you. You and I are told that we're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people that have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. I better wrap it up. But he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. He becomes a model for us in not only receiving the salvation that he himself provides, but he becomes the model for living the life, for learning obedience by the things that we suffer, realizing that God works in us to mature and develop us, and that is not an easy path to take. But you know how the author of Hebrews finishes this discussion in this particular section? He says, I've got a whole lot to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you're sluggish. Interesting, isn't it? You're slow to understand. In fact, though, by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone else to keep repeating this truth to you. You need milk, not solid food. Well, if these believers... Jewish Christian believers, Gentile believers in Rome 
we're having trouble with this. I wonder about us having trouble with this and being somewhat sluggish, not paying sufficient attention to so great a salvation that breaks the bounds of sort of the modern, late modern mindset because God himself has spoken and acted. Two things I guess you take away from this is we've got a really great salvation. And that we have in Jesus a model for how the life should be lived. Learning obedience by the things that he suffered. And you know, it alludes to Gethsemane, of course. But it also alludes to the spiritual disciplines of living an obedient, faithful life because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for, by your spirit, giving us this letter to the early church that is now a letter to us. May you be praised. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.